This podcast is sponsored by UL Firefighter Safety Research Institute. In today's modern fire environment, people have three minutes or less to escape a house fire. Fire is getting faster. But smoke alarms are getting smarter. For more information on smoke alarm technology advancements and resources to share with the public, visit smokealarms.ul.org. a firefighter and an EMS professional. You are a part of a worldwide brotherhood of dedicated servants and you put your life on the line every day for others. Because of that, you deserve better. We are often our own worst enemies and it's time to own it. Let's work to improve and change the status quo. That change starts with us, right here, right now. In every situation we're faced with, as we see a need, we own it and we act. Be the ideal firefighter you would want on your crew. Be ignited. Hey everyone, my name is Ryan Rodriguez and I'm the founder of Ignited and your host for the Ignited Firefighter Podcast. The Ignited Movement is a brotherhood of firefighters who challenge the status quo through a forum dedicated to self-improvement and accountability. In each of these episodes, we discuss a myriad of different things challenging the fire service today, from leadership and tactics to how to improve ourselves physically as well as mentally. We aim to civilize the mind but make savage the body. And even though the focus is on the fire service, topics and principles we discuss can be applied by professionals everywhere. That being said, let's light the spark. As firefighters, we are a unique culture. We tend to fall into the type A personality category where we are very competitive. We have an ingrained sense of urgency and we have an affinity toward being hostile and aggressive at times. However, we also have a handful of type B personalities as well. So these are people who are more relaxed, a bit more patient, and more easygoing. Something important to remember is that one isn't more productive or effective than the other when it comes to a position in the fire service. Both serve their purpose for different situations. We shouldn't think of ourselves as strictly one or the other. And we damn sure shouldn't act like one is better than the other. We should be adaptable to each situation that presents itself and utilize traits from both sides of the coin. Think of it this way. A carpenter doesn't just have a hammer in his toolbox, right? He's got an array of tools that he can use for specific projects because he understands that a hammer isn't the end-all, be-all. Within our organizations, we operate in subcultures under the umbrella of being firefighters and EMS professionals. Each of our respective organizations has a mission, a vision, and values. If not, <laughs> then you've got some work to do. And it's up to us how we want our cultures to look. Do we want to operate under the table, motivated by selfish political gain? Or do we want to operate in a manner that promotes a healthy culture where we put our cards on the holy dining table that we all talk a big game about and operate in a truthful and respectful way where mutual benefits are the goal. Today, I'm going to identify some challenges that we face in the fire service culture, and I'll give you some personal examples that I've had in dealing with toxic culture. I'll also provide three strategies to help you build a thriving culture, no matter what organization you belong to. 
I'm going to start out by talking about the involvement that senior leadership should have. Now, this is all of your battalion chiefs, operations chief, and the chief himself, and any administrators who fall under that senior leadership title. Trust me, I understand that what I'm about to say isn't how a lot of organizations operate, but it's how they should operate. I want to start off by talking about what the ideal should be so that there's a definite example of how things should look for a productive and engaged organization. Culture affects performance, safety, diversity and inclusion, strengths, compliance, innovation, and much more. It's important to assess your current situation and visualize your ideal state. According to a Gallup poll that I read this past week, only 41% of employees strongly agree that they know what their company stands for and what makes it different from other organizations. If we were to turn that into a letter grade, that would be a straight up F. Anything under 60% would be failure. Is that good enough for your organization? Is your senior leadership team and fire chief okay with that grade when it comes to how well informed their people are? Or they aren't, I guess I should say. Honestly, it's, it's quite despicable. As leaders, or I'm sorry, as firefighters and EMS professionals, we are hailed as the heroes of society, even though we don't necessarily feel like we are. The public sees us that way. How would you feel if they discovered that the organizations meant to provide them with life and safety have no real understanding of what specific values and goals their organization really stands for? As a basic understanding, we all know that we're in the business of providing help to those in need for just about any dangerous situation a person may find themselves in. However, it's how we provide that help that sets us apart and puts our cultures on display. So let's say you respond to a woman who called 911 for her husband who collapsed and is now unconscious and not breathing. She's confused, she doesn't know what's happening, and she doesn't know what to do, which is why she calls us. You show up on scene and you do what you can do to instill some kind of stability to the chaotic uh, events going on around her. You've got dogs barking in the background, the woman who called is crying and asking you what's happening, and now neighbors who insist on telling you that they have relatives who are nurses in another state keep trying to tell you about their 911 experiences, all while you and your crew are trying to keep this guy from going into the light. If we perform our basic services, we would, I'm talking basic, basic services. We would initiate medical care, go through our algorithms, and then tell the wife which hospital we'd be taking her husband to. That's literally the least we could do. If we just showed up and did the very minimum, that's what it would basically sound like. And it may be enough, but are you the type of person that's okay with being just enough? I know I'm not, and neither is my crew. Let me share with you how my crew would handle this situation. We'd show up with an obvious sense of urgency. My BLS guys will get to work on identifying if the patient is breathing and or has a pulse. From there, the lead medic would formulate a treatment plan and ask for assistance from the other medic on scene. While they're all performing their designated tasks, the lead medic will inform the wife of what we've identified as happening and what we're going to do about it. I've discovered that sometimes just keeping people informed makes all the difference in regards to how they feel about a situation, regardless of the outcome. I've seen a lot of people just stand there and kind of go about their business. And meanwhile, the family's loved ones are right there next to them crying. They still don't know what's happening. We have a sense for what's happening because we're, we're diagnosing, we're using like a differential diagnosis to identify the problem so we can fix it. 
But meanwhile, these people are standing next to us and they have no idea what's going on. It's kind of our responsibility to fill them in on what's happening with their loved one. Um, anyway, so as, as she gets fed information, she feels like she's got some kind of semblance of control. And we ask her for help in gathering her husband's medications, filling us in on any kind of medical conditions he may have. We put the neighbors to work in wrangling the dogs outside or to another room so they don't get loose or injured in all the hustle and bustle. We make sure that all of our protocols have been followed and that we've provided the best possible care that we can. And then we load him up to be transported. We inform his wife of where we're taking him, making sure she knows where the hospital is and how to get there. And remember those nosy neighbors that always bug you? I typically will recruit them uh, to some kind of task. So I'll oftentimes recruit them to drive the, the wife or family members to the ER so they don't have to think about all of that. Um, they've got enough to think about right now with all the traumatic events happening. They want to feel like they're helping too. So I give them a job to do. My EMTs have kicked butt and trading offs, uh, trading off sets of 200 compressions for a total of 800 because we do CCR here. We don't do CPR. So we do, uh, four sets of 200 compressions, uh, before we innovate and all of that stuff. Um, and, and, and my EMTs, they hang back and clean up every single piece of litter and equipment that we left behind. This part means a lot to me personally, because when my grandfather was suffering from his fatal heart attack, the ambulance crew worked him near the porch stairs of the cabin that he built for my grandpa or for my grandma. And when they left for the ER, they left a mountain of medical litter and waste on the, on the walkway. And so when my grandma returned home without her husband, she was greeted with a bunch of used IV catheters and shock pad wrappers and papers and this and that. And she sat on the stairs of her porch that my grandfather had built with his bare hands and cried for hours. Now, I'm not saying she wouldn't have done that had that all that evidence of what had just happened not been there, but it sure didn't help. That's no way to leave the people that we serve because she wound up cleaning that up. I've worked on a five-man ladder crew and I've worked on two-man ambulance crews. And I understand that the urgency of the situation is all focused on the person who's having the medical emergency. But I'd challenge you to put some focus on those who are living and have to carry that trauma with them for the rest of their lives. I've gone back to plenty of scenes and cleaned up the mess that I've made. People don't expect that. People don't really know what to expect, quite honestly, which provides us a perfect opportunity to show the people we serve exactly how we will treat them as the professionals that we are and that we could be. Keep in mind that people are usually calling us on what could very well be the worst day of their life. Not only that, the only experience they may ever have dialing 911 and the only interaction they could ever have with the fire department or ambulance service is based on those, those negative traumatic events. Even though this is usually at no fault of our own, I mean, obviously we didn't cause the problem, we can purposefully do things to make sure that their experience isn't negative because of us. One of the things that I personally do to make sure that the last interaction that they experience with us is on the positive side is that I send them a personal handwritten note. In this note, I either express my condolences or I tell them how much I appreciated their help in assisting me with whatever it is that I ask them, or I simply tell them that we're always here for them and that we care. 
I cater the note to my personal experience with them, which bridges the gap and helps bring a personal connection to a very personal situation instead of treating them like I'm on some kind of assembly line and that they really ultimately don't matter. I will share some pictures of the, the note cards that I'm talking about that I had made up. Uh, I actually made them up through Vistaprint. Um, I'll take pictures of them and share them on Instagram so you guys can get an idea of what I'm talking about. This is just one example of different ways that I like to personally add value to the services that I provide. And I'm sure you're all thinking of ways right now that would serve your specific communities. I'd encourage you guys to act on those ideas and bridge the gap so that the people that, that you serve feel a personal connection with our organization and with your organization, and they think of it as their fire department or their ambulance service. You want them to feel that ownership because ultimately we are their fire department. We are their ambulance service. It's well past time for us to regain the connection that we have with the public. And by focusing on the things that we can do to bridge that gap, we naturally improve our culture. Some people, especially organizational leaders, mistakenly assume that organizational culture is simply a social phenomenon. It simply just happens on its own. And that may be true to an extent, but a culture can be decided and it can be cultivated by learning about employees' shared values, thoughts, rituals, and behaviors. These factors wield enormous influence over employees' actions and decisions. Some cultures motivate employees and fuel performance and others drain their motivation and make people feel like they have no control over their environment or have or, or don't have any incentive to perform. People's perception about their work culture depends on their leaders' actions and words. And people's perception of those actions and words influence their own engagement, for good or bad. Cultivating an engaging work culture can be daunting for leaders whose attention is on tactical and strategic matters only. However, leaders can employ three straightforward daily behaviors that set the tone for the right workplace culture and lay the groundwork for exceptional engagement. And these aren't just for ranked leaders either. These behaviors can be instituted on the ground level, and soon you'll find that those around you will be interested in what you're doing and how to incorporate in their behaviors as well. I know a lot of leaders say like, well, we run EMS calls. We do EMS and fire. That's what we do. Yeah, that's what we do. Those are our tasks and our strategic matters. But how we do those things is our culture. So these, these behaviors that I'm going to talk about may seem simple, but they aren't always easy. So here they are. Number one, show respect. Being kind to people while operating in this profession should be a given. However, sometimes people either get so burned out or entitled that they wind up treating their coworkers and sadly even the people that they serve in a rude or disrespectful way. You don't have to be everyone's best friend. That's not what I'm saying. There are plenty of people that I've worked with who I would never spend time with outside of work, but that doesn't mean that I can't work with them or be civil and kind while on duty and sharing a station and a truck with them. One of the ways we can show kindness to the people that we're working with is to offer our help with anything they may be working on. So for example, if you see someone on your crew going through cabinets on the truck, cleaning tools, then go over and offer to help. Not only are you maintaining and taking care of your tools of the trade, but you're creating an opportunity to have a conversation and get to know a person who your life may rely on someday. Cultivating these relationships and creating these open windows for conversation allow opportunities to talk about real issues that we may be facing as a crew or that we may be facing as individuals. Something else to, 
make a conscious effort to do is to acknowledge people's efforts. We often hear a lot about, uh, or we actually, we often hear a lot of criticism about what we need to do better or how we can improve our skills. But what we don't hear a lot about are words of acknowledgement and encouragement. So for example, when I was first learning how to start IVs, there wasn't a shortage of people who would pounce on me and make fun of me for every failed attempt. And this kind of attitude is written off as, well, that's just how the fire service works. That's how it is. We just tease each other all the time. That's how it works. And if your goal is to create an environment where nobody trusts anyone, then yeah, yeah, keep doing that thing. Keep operating that way because those people aren't going to want to come to you for help. They're not going to want to talk to you. They're not going to want to open up to you. If you want to create and cultivate a culture that's built on small instances of trust and encouragement, then that kind of attitude has no place within our organizations. I'm not saying you can't kid and joke with people and razz them from time to time. That's, yeah, I get it. We're a bunch of guys for the most part, and that's what we do. But that's part of what makes this job fun, I understand. But when it's all the time and it's unrelenting, it causes people to remove all sense of safety in their relationships and their trust altogether. Not to mention people's, I'm sorry, not to mention deflating people's passion for the job, which causes an early burnout. We shouldn't reserve positive recognition for formal events. We should be offering up positive recognition on the daily. Build each other up. As we do, we all become stronger. Number two, communicate with clarity. I talked about this a little bit in a previous episode, how if you just keep people informed, they're more likely to accept the situation no matter how terrible it is. And I mentioned that uh, in the example I gave earlier about how my crew handles EMS calls. Communicating with clarity is crucial to cultivating a culture that people want to be a part of. Think about it. No matter where you stand politically, wanting transparency and clear communication is what we want as voters. So with Hillary, it could be the 33,000 plus emails that disappeared. With President Trump, it could be the conversation he had with the prime minister of the Ukraine. One of the many differences between how these two people handled their or their respective situations was that President Trump released a transcript of the conversation he had while Hillary made excuses. Communication and transparency builds trust. Another incredible example of communication and transparency and transparency that comes to mind from uh, is from Ray Dalio. I'm not sure if you're familiar with who Ray Dalio is, but if you aren't familiar with who he is, he's an American billionaire investor, hedge fund manager, and philanthropist. He gives credit to his success to the principles that he abides by. And in fact, he wrote a book called Principles by Ray Dalio, where he breaks down each of the ones that he operates by. Uh, as the co-chairman and co-chief investment officer, he will hold weekly meetings where he and his team gather around a giant table, just like we gather around our kitchen tables, and communicate to each other about the strategies and challenges facing them as an organization. What separates these meetings from other organizations is that he has cameras and microphones mounted all throughout the room that live stream the meeting to anyone within the organization who wants to log in and watch it. Not only that, he understands that people can't just drop everything they're doing and watch this meeting. So what he does is he records them and he puts them up on a server so people can watch at their convenience at a later time. This is what he calls extreme transparency, and it has unified his organization by instilling trust through that open communication. There is absolutely no reason why fire service organizations 
cannot operate in this same manner. Sometimes senior leadership and labor and uh, labor have such a sense of secrecy, usually driven by ego, that they think the members of the organization can't handle being told the things that are going on behind the scenes. What they continually fail to realize is that we are people who literally have agreed to an understanding that we may lose our lives doing this job. So we're kind of entitled to know what the hell is going on. On the labor side, we pay monthly dues to contribute financially to people who we trust to have our best interests at heart. Now, how do we confirm that trust if we, if we aren't a part of things, if we aren't let in on what's going on, quote unquote, behind the scenes? Yeah, we can go to our, our labor meetings and our union meetings and this and that. But when they have special side meetings and they have all these things going on that they aren't telling membership about, well, that's, that's just bullshit. When those people who are charged, no, gifted the opportunity to serve in those roles, when they make claims that they can't share information openly, then they're adding to the chaos and creating environments of distrust. As leaders remain needlessly guarded with their communication, employees tend to fill the gaps. That's how the rumor mill starts. This is where rumors get kicked into high gear. In our righteous desire to have information and feel informed, which we have every right to, we either create scenarios that aren't real to fill those gaps, or we perpetuate someone else's theory about what's really going on. Assumptions abound, rumors fly, and relationships deteriorate. Trust falls away. But sharing what is happening isn't enough. Leaders need to explain why in order to foster an engaged, an engaged culture. Excuse me. Changing a fire service organization culture is difficult. I get it. It's like changing the direction of an aircraft carrier. It's slow and it's cumbersome. However, it doesn't have to be that way. I've read studies and have been witness to how a fire service culture can completely change in only six months. It was through an incredible focus on principles, fearless accountability, and trust. But if people don't understand the motive and are left to suspect rumors, nothing will change. A key thing to remember here is that this kind of communication is super important before change happens. That way, people can feel like they've had an opportunity to input their ideas and concerns, even if those ideas aren't incorporated into the change. The simple fact that they've been listened to is often enough for people to buy in regardless. One thing for leaders to remember is that if they're going to ask for input, they have to do something about receiving that input, even if it's explaining the reasons why that input can't be used moving forward. If you don't follow up as a leader, your team will likely stop providing input altogether. People won't waste their breath, and if they feel like they aren't being heard, they'll never speak up. It's crucial for us to communicate in a clear and unassuming manner so that the people we serve and the people we're trying to reach understand what we're saying and that clarity prevails. Number three, promote accountability. You hear me talk about it all the time, accountability. Lack of accountability is typically the single greatest thing that is contributing to a toxic culture. But where does it start? How do you begin in an organization that's been off the chain for years, if not decades? It starts with clear principles that everyone is expected to operate by. Everyone. This means the lowest level firefighter to the fire chief themselves. If the leaders aren't holding themselves and others to the principles agreed upon as an organization, 
then everyone under them in the hierarchy will come to the understanding that those principles are arbitrary and offer no purpose in adhering to or operating by them. Another thing that needs to be made clear is that the word accountability doesn't become equitable to punishment. I touched on this earlier when I was talking about showing respect. People need to be hailed for the good things that they do just as much as they need to be called out for the bad things that they do. I've witnessed chief officers go around on some kind of apologist tour and literally cry to us about how they don't like to discipline people. Literal tears coming out of their faces. One thing I think they fail to realize is that discipline equals freedom. First of all, no, nobody wants to follow a, you know, a crybaby into battle. Nobody wants to do that. And, and one thing, like I said, that they fail to realize is that discipline equals freedom. If you're a fan of Jocko Willink or if you know who he is, you know exactly what I'm talking about because he has built his company, his empire, Echelon Front, on that ideal. Multi-million dollar companies hire him and his team to explain exactly what that means and how it relates to their organizations. Years ago, like centuries ago, Aristotle proclaimed the same thing. Through discipline comes freedom. Basically, the idea is that as you become more disciplined in your methods and way of thinking, the more opportunities you have to do the things that you want to do. For example, if I say that I want to compete in a Spartan race, and I highly recommend that everyone does at least one of these in their lifetime, if you haven't already, they're friggin' amazing. Um, if, if I say that I want to compete in a Spartan race, and I don't do any prep work to make that happen, I'm am I going to be able to accomplish that feat? No, absolutely not. Just like the 200 pound plus person who climbs up a mountain they've never been on before and who has done no physical training whatsoever, gets themselves stuck on a mountain because they've injured their angle or because they've injured their ankle and uh, they can't, they can't make it down now. So that requires us to have to go up and pull them off. We have the freedom to perform that task because we've been disciplined in our physical exercise and our tactical training. The robust person who has now found themselves stuck up on a mountain is completely at the mercy of others and is not free in any way. They're a prisoner in their own body and they're a prisoner in their own mind because they're living in a delusion that they can accomplish things that they just can't. Until they engage the discipline necessary to do so, they will remain a prisoner. Let's do a quick recap on the strategies that I went over that'll help you cultivate a culture that you'd actually want to be a part of. Number one, show respect from the homeless guy on the street to the fire chief. Number two, communicate with clarity. Make clarity your goal. Number three, promote accountability. Don't equate discipline to punishment. Equate it to freedom. We spend at least a third of our lives at work. Don't you want it to be a positive experience instead of having the mindset where you hate going to work and then you can't wait to go home once you're there? We're fortunate in the fire service in that we can retire in about 20 years from getting hired. Most of us stay longer for love of the job. Wouldn't you want to love your organization and the people in it? I've put together a challenge that can help you initiate a leadership mentality regardless of what rank you hold. It'll help you cultivate a culture that people are going to want to be a part of. You can find the link on the Ignited website in the top right corner at www.ignitedff.com and I'll also post it all over uh, my social media outlets. So as always, guys, thank you for listening to the Ignited Firefighter Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share. 
As we delve deeper into these issues we cover, we can come together and help each other learn and grow. Remember, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at IgnitedFF. I'd also like to invite you all to join the Ignited Firefighter Podcast Facebook group. This is where we as firefighters and EMS professionals can come together and discuss the topics touched on in the show. We all know something that someone else doesn't. And as we lift each other, we become stronger. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, if you see a need, own it and take action. Be the firefighter you want on your crew. Be ignited.